This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Okay, so welcome to the third in this series on balanced practice. How's the volume? Is that okay? It sounds a little loud to me, but okay. Um, maybe it's good. And then there will be uh, two more after this. So there's uh, it's a five-talk series. And as was mentioned, um, the topic for tonight is On the Cushion and in the World, another dimension that we balance as lay people, and actually all practitioners balance on and off the cushion um, in some way. But here in the West, one of the frequent questions um, from practitioners is, how can I bring my cushion practice into daily life? This is a very common question. And I appreciate the um, kind of the heartfulness of it and the... um, the desire to integrate and to, you know, really make this a whole path because that's what the Buddha was teaching. But in some ways, I'm not sure it's the right question um, in that the, the Buddhist teachings of the Eightfold Path really do describe a way of life, a whole way of life that leads toward liberation. And I don't know that you can actually only practice on the cushion <laughs> or only practice. Well, you could you could choose not to sit on the cushion, I suppose. But I think to, to practice any of the folds of the Eightfold Path deeply, one would need to practice the others too. You don't get too far in just one of them without the support of the others. So you can't just meditate, nor can you just behave ethically if you're, leaving, if you're wanting liberation. It's a whole system. So we're going to talk about these dimensions tonight. Definitely in the suttas, the Buddha has a lot to say about how practice touches into our whole life. And I'm going to, I'm going to start with that dimension, what's actually in the written discourses that have come to us. And then, um, but the way he talks about it is often not what people are asking when they say, how do I bring my cushion practice into the world? And we often have different ideas in mind, I've noticed, in the modern world with that question. So I want to offer some reflections on how, uh, how we can approach this from our, our current societal standpoint. I think that has to do a lot with the balance of wisdom and compassion. So that'll be more what I'll move into in the second part of the talk. So starting with the with the suttas, with the written discourses of the Buddha, one can notice that there is a distinction between teachings for lay people and for monastics in general. There are plenty of teachings for both, more for monastics, (laughs) maybe because the monastics preserved the teachings over time. Um, 
But there are definitely differences. In particular, lay people tend not to receive teachings on sitting practice very often. Those are often directed toward monks. Although, I'll add the caveat that we don't know necessarily who was in the audience. Because my understanding from the scholars is that if there are monks and nuns present, as well as lay people, and the Buddha were speaking to them, he would say, monks, blah, 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 because, of course, the monks were the most important people there. And the lay people might not be mentioned. So we don't know if there were sometimes lay people there in those teachings. But generally, like when the Buddha is talking directly to a lay person, and it's clear that that's who he's with, uh, the teachings are not so strongly about concentration or about sitting practice. There are some exceptions to that. So there's this distinction in the in the Theravadan suttas. But now, both in the both um, in Asia and here in the West, we have lots of lay people with who sit. Lots of lay people who meditate. Like right here in this room, we have the free time, sufficient free time to be dedicated meditators. So. I feel very comfortable um, speaking today both about the teachings for lay people and the teachings for monastics because actually as lay people here in the West we uh, follow both of them. Nonetheless, I'll start with um, some suttas that talk about teachings for lay people. These are actually, if we're talking about this distinction on the cushion and in the world, these are mostly in the world teachings, how to act in your daily life. And they're mostly about ethical conduct and about merit-making. As you might imagine, the lay people um, had the task of supporting the monastic's way of life, as well as developing their own practice. One way to practice that the Buddha offered to lay people is through association and imitation, if you will. Those are not his words. I'm encapsulating that, summarizing that. So, for example, um, there's a teaching where he talks about four qualities to look for and emulate in a friend as a layperson. And these are nice qualities. They are uh, faith or confidence, which is sadha in Pali, virtue, sila, generosity, uh, chaga. I know we just heard that it's dana, but that's another word for it. <laughs> chaga is the mental quality and um, wisdom, or panya. So, for example, there's a quote about this. The Buddha says, he's talking about friendship, association with other practitioners, other good lay people. What is good friendship? Herein, in whatsoever village or market town a householder dwells, He associates, converses, engages in discussions with householders or householders' sons, whether young or highly cultured, or old and highly cultured, full of faith, full of virtue, full of generosity, full of wisdom. He acts in accordance with the faith of the faithful, with the virtue of the virtuous, with the generosity of the generous, and with the wisdom of the wise. This is called good friendship. So it's nice. He says right up front, that it matters who you hang out with. This is a very common teaching for lay people. Because, why? Because the Buddha understood that the mind is malleable. And that's the whole reason that we can develop the mind, is that it's um, 
capable of changing depending on the circumstances that it's in. So we spend a lot of time telling people, these are good circumstances to put your mind and body in to conduce to uh, a happy life and if you're interested towards liberation. So this is nice. He's saying, associate with people that have good qualities. And now we all have people in our lives who exemplify certain good qualities. Um, They don't have to be Buddhist. You know, our wise grandmother or the neighbor that we know we can always trust to be there, right? And so the Buddha encourages us to use our discernment and notice who in our lives uh, has various wholesome qualities and to associate frequently with them and to consciously emulate their good qualities. This is a pretty basic teaching, but it's very common. And it's interesting how we don't necessarily... Like sometimes we rub up against that a little bit. One common thing I hear from people early in their practice is often a little choice point that people get to where they start, they've been practicing for a little while and maybe it's not all their friends practice and they start asking, well, I find that when I hang out with these other friends, I don't meditate as much or I'm, you know, it's like I, I don't feel as comfortable there. You know, now I want to be with other people. And there's a little question, is it okay for me to change my friends a little bit or hang out more with different people? It says right here in the teachings, go with that. You know, go with the people that have the qualities you want to emulate. Put your mind in a situation where it's going to be absorbing good qualities. This seems natural. So this is one of the first choices we make about how to direct our mind along the path is to get in association with people that are going to support that intention in us. It's interesting, once I had a friend who was um, very kind to animals. That was like kind of her, seemed like her purpose in the world is that she was just really very compassionate to them and attuned to them. And her worldly work was around protecting animals in various ways. And she knew a lot about animals and their habitats. And so she would always be pointing things out. And I noticed that when I was with her, I would see more animals. (laughs) Not that I don't see animals, but just when I was with her, I would see them more and I would feel an appreciation and connection with them that I probably wouldn't have felt as deeply on my own. And I knew that it was because because of her, (laughs) you know, it's because that's just how she was. And I realized, well, this is kind of nice, you know, this is something I can, um, I can experience when I'm with this person and appreciate it. So, you know, so I thought that was kind of a good quality to develop is this compassion. So um, because of being with her in that way, I began to see in myself uh, more this untapped capacity for interconnection that she had developed more. So I think it's not so much that our friends have things that we don't and we're trying to, you know, suck it off of them or something. It's that some people have developed things more than we have and we've developed things more than some other people have. And it's all there within us to be developed. And when we're with people who have developed something more, then that part resonates in us and we can start to move in that direction too. It's not that other people are substituting for things we don't have, but they can help draw out the things we already have but haven't tapped into, yeah? So this is the influence of a good friend. Through them, we see our own good more clearly. Of course, there's some skill in interacting 
with an admirable friend like this. It's not, uh, I just want to emphasize it in this sense of emulation. It's not that we're forming a comparison and think that we're inadequate or lacking compared to our friend. Um, This is what I was saying before. So the point is to find admirable people and use their presence to tap into our own noble qualities. So hang out with the people who make you feel lighter and clearer and happier. (laughs) In the West, um, talking about in-the-world practice, people also um, often want to talk about compassionate action in the world. Like my friends work with animals, for instance, or people who work on social justice or various political causes or environmental it's interesting that this kind of action is not so frequently mentioned in the Theravadan, the Pali Suttas, um, except there are um, there are sort of general statements like being responsive to needs and being charitable, um, responding to requests, for example. And the implication is that if somebody comes and asks you for help, you say yes, or if somebody comes to the door who is a beggar, you give them food. So there's that sense of being responsive um, and sort of socially aware that you're part of a system and you can help people who are needing help. Um, But this kind of um, political action, I think, was just not a concept in a a pre-democratic world. Um, I'll talk about this a little bit later. So the teachings are more around this um, idea of developing the mind and associating with people and behaving ethically and less about how can I use my practice to influence the political structures and things like that. So we'll, we'll talk about that more when I get into the more modern interpretation of on the cushion and in the world. As I said before, the Buddhist teachings for lay people tend not to mention formal meditation, so commonly, it's not clear that many lay people were serious meditators at the time of the Buddha. So, um, but they do, the teachings do mention wisdom in the form of seeing arising and passing, which I think is interesting. Um, teachings even for lay people. So, for example, there's a, um, a fairly famous lay follower named Mahanama, who was a good practitioner, and um, there's a, a wonderful sutta where it, that first um, Mahanama is asking the Buddha about what it means to be a lay follower. And the Buddha says, this is one who's taken refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And then um, it goes on to talk about four qualities, um, which are not uh, accidentally the same four qualities that were talked about before. It's a common set, except they're in a different order, virtue, faith, generosity, and wisdom. And when you get to wisdom, this this particular sutta to Mahanama actually defines what each of these things is in the Buddhist view, like what is a virtuous person, what is a faithful person. Um, And when it gets to wisdom, here's the quote. Uh, Mahanama says, In what way, Venerable Sir, is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? And the Buddha says, Here, Mahanama, a lay follower is wise. He possesses wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in wisdom. So those are kind of formal words, but um, to unpack them a little bit, 
this is pointing fairly clearly at um, at liberative practice, not only at layperson practice aimed at getting a better life in the next lifetime, which was you know, getting a better rebirth was often the aim for lay people. But this teaching to Mahanama says, he possesses wisdom directed to arising and passing away. That's a deep understanding of a Nietzsche, of a quality of, of one of the three characteristics. And it says, noble and penetrative, those are key words, meaning that it's actually leading toward liberation. It can penetrate the darkness of ignorance and see things as they are, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. And it is said... Um, in other suttas that Mahanama was said to have attained the first stage of awakening and to be headed for Nibbana himself. So there is, it is not said that lay followers can't, um, can't be practicing for liberation, nor is it said that they can't achieve stages of awakening. So the, um, I want to be clear that the, uh, the Buddha did have um, high aspiration, you know, did say that lay people could have high aspirations. Now I have to say, if I say that, that the Buddha was clear that lay people don't attain full enlightenment. Yes, lay people, they need to ordain, or if they do, they'll ordain immediately. So there is that little distinction. There's always that distinction between the lay people and the monks. But he was very, very equitable about, um, about uh, what lay people can achieve. So I want to turn now to teachings that are offered for monastics. You know, so we've seen, let me just um, summarize, we've seen for lay people that a lot of the teachings are around um, ethical conduct, wise association, making merit through generosity and virtue, and also there's some references to metta practice, to purifying the heart. And that's the bulk of it. And there are some teachings that talk to lay people about developing noble wisdom and about uh, really penetrating the meaning of the teachings. But there's kind of a proportionality there where there's more on this other side. So now for monastics, we can ask, what does he teach about on the cushion and in the world? In this case... um, it's not, you might say, I've set you up to say for the monastics, it's the flip side. It's all about meditation and a little bit in the world. It's not true, actually. The Buddha taught a very integrated path for monastics because remember, they had dedicated their whole life to practice. They had ordained with him and they weren't going to have a profession. They were going to live. And you don't meditate 24 hours a day. You walk around, you eat, you sleep, you talk with other people. All of that was part of practice. So he offered a very integrative path that leads all the way to liberation. Not at all just a path of meditation, but one that includes one's whole life, i.e. the Eightfold Path. So interestingly, this is actually more what we model off of here in the West um, for serious practitioners. There's the, there is the cushion practice, and then there's everything you're doing in daily life pointing toward, um, toward awakening. And it's the same for dedicated lay practitioners in Asia. Um, there's, there's, there are a set of people like the Westerners in Asia who do a lot of meditation, do retreats, all of that. They're not all only making merit. Okay, so the particular teaching that I want to focus on first is a teaching that's called the Gradual Path. And this is a teaching that's repeated across several suttas. Um, the Buddha is offering... Um, He's offering this thing called the graduated, the gradual path, where one 
doesn't just attain enlightenment right away, but there's a whole series of steps. And in fact, there are a lot of steps that you do before you even sit down and meditate. It wasn't like monks came in. I mean, some of them did. But uh, a new monk would come in, maybe with no sense of spiritual training, and the Buddha didn't have him just sit down on the cushion and, you know, start doing satipatthana practice. Um, there was a, actually a whole series of steps that he would lead a monk through before the monk was even ready to sit. So, starting with the, um, the general principle that he taught, the Buddha says in one of the suttas, I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. Yeah, so the gradual training. And I'm going to read a couple different templates. There are actually two different, at least two different templates that he talks about um, for how you go about this gradual, gradual training. So the first template starts with training in ethical conduct. So the monk is asked to restrain unethical behavior. Um, and then uh, restraint at the sense doors. So that's kind of the uh, deepening of that. So restraint at all the sense doors of not getting caught up in you know, pretty sights and tantalizing smells and thoughts of sex and so forth. So training in ethical conduct, restraint at the sense doors, moderation in eating. Apparently this was a specific training. Um, devotion to wakefulness. And what that means is you know, um, what that actually means is not sleeping a lot. <laughs> um, monks didn't, uh, you weren't supposed to laze around and sleep 12 hours a day just because you weren't working anymore, <laughs> you know. So devotion to wakefulness is you only got four hours of sleep, just so you know. <laughs> Mindfulness in daily activities, so um, becoming mindful of everything. And this means mindfulness of walking, of extending the limbs, of of pulling the limbs back, of eating, of speaking, of remaining silent, of urinating, of defecating, everything uh, falls within the realm of mindfulness. So we haven't even gotten to meditation yet. These are all the trainings that a monk goes through just to purify the behavior and to purify the thoughts and the conduct uh, sufficiently that the next step is to sit down in meditation. And that's either jhana practice or um, satipatthana, mindfulness practice, four foundations of mindfulness, which then lead to awakening. So there's like all this stuff, right? Um, And then finally there's the sit down and get to the awakening. Um, I think it's interesting that there's so much that comes before sitting for monastic. Now I'm sure that they would... I'm not sure, but I would guess that they participated in daily meditation anyway. But the focus of their training was on all this other stuff first. And then they were given more detailed meditation instructions. So here's another one. I actually read it in the first talk in this series. Faith in a teacher, visiting and paying respect, giving ear, hearing the teachings, memorizing the teachings, examining the meaning, gaining reflective acceptance, zeal, applying will, scrutinizing, which means contemplation and meditation, striving, also meditation, and realizing the supreme truth. 
So again, there's a bunch of things that happen before the monk sits down. And in this case, it's focused more on the view. So there's faith in the teacher, and then there's learning the teachings and memorizing them and reflecting on them, deciding that they make sense. And then, only after all of that, does there arise interest in practice, and then you sit down on the cushion and realize the supreme truth. (laughs) So I like these sequences. They're very clear all the way to the end. So whether it's training in the behavior or training in the view, there's a lot of things that have to get kind of aligned before the Buddha says it's appropriate to sit down and practice the four foundations of mindfulness or concentration practice, which are the things that he emphasized leading to liberation. Now here in the West, we're very, um, we like to start at the end. So we we hear all this and we say, yeah, okay, but just give me the meditation instructions. I just want to start with that, and and then we um, then we think about, oh right, how can I take my cushion practice into the world? <laughs> I've been sitting on the cushion for three years and I still snap at my daughter. How can I fix that? Then we start realizing, oh, there's a reason why all this stuff happens first, and. This is not an accident that in the Eightfold Path um, there's right view, right intention at the beginning. So this is this training of the view, getting the mind oriented toward practice. Then there's what? Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Get your behavior in order, get your conduct in order. Only then do we get right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Sitting is supposed to be at the end, and it's supposed to, this is why the Buddha talks about people sitting down and, you know, practicing for a little while and attaining the jhanas and, you know, getting there, because they've done all this other work ahead of time to really have pure conduct and really have an understanding of the teachings. And, you know, we don't do that, we just leap in. There's, I'm going to give an example later of a monk who does what we do in the West, um, so, but we so we have all these challenges. <laughs> um, there's a story, actually. I mean, I'm I'm joking a little bit, and it's it's not like that for everyone. But there is a story about um, an Asian teacher. This is back about 40 years ago when practice was really quite new in the West um, for ret- long retreat practice for Westerners. And a, a monk or some some Asian an Asian teacher came to IMS in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts, where. They were running a retreat. I don't know if it was the three-month retreat, but it was some kind of an intensive retreat. And the monk, there were some lay teachers there teaching with this monk. And he said, why is it that people suffer so much on these retreats? You know, they come on retreat and it's so hard for them. Um, And the lay teachers thought about that and they said, well, I think it's because people don't practice generosity and ethics before they sit. The teacher said, oh, okay, and it made perfect sense. You know, they, he says, they just come and they just want to sit. They just want to meditate and um, start with that. And the monk said, oh, okay, then it makes sense. So there is this idea of the sequence. Um, and it's okay, you can do it in any order. The Eightfold Path is cyclic, actually. Um, but I think it's important to note that um, the Buddha taught really a very graduated teaching that starts off the cushion, and then we proceed toward on the cushion. Also, uh, my teacher, Gil Fransdahl, uh, went to graduate school. After he'd been to Asia and done a lot of practice, he went to graduate school in Buddhist studies at Stanford. And there he met 
an Asian person who was um, studying also in his same program, and he, so he talked with this person about um, about their their interest in Buddhism, their faith, because they were culturally Buddhist. You know, they had grown up Buddhist. And he said, well, you know, what do you do for meditation? Um, and she said, oh, I don't meditate yet. I'm still, I'm still working on that. You know, I, she'd spent her whole childhood um, giving alms offerings to monks. She came to graduate school to learn the teachings. She's following the second path, you know, visiting teachers, paying respect, giving ear, hearing the Dhamma, examining the meaning, gaining reflective acceptance. For her, that was all preparation. And she figured when she had the PhD and maybe had studied a little more and practiced, then she could start meditating. That was her understanding. Very interesting. So I think it's clear that... um, on and off the cushion practice are both critical. So now, <clears throat> there is, just before we get think that we're too totally different and that the Buddha had never, you know, the, everybody did this gradual path, there's a lovely story in the Udana about a monk named, a very enthusiastic monk named Magia. And um, he had just ordained and was the Buddha's attendant. I don't know where Ananda was, maybe he hadn't arrived yet. But Magia was the Buddha's attendant and was staying with the Buddha and um, practicing with him. And he said to the Buddha one afternoon, can I have the afternoon off and go meditate intensively in that mango grove? And the Buddha said, I don't think so. Um, It's probably, it's not the right time for you, Magia. And he asked again. He said, I want to go meditate all afternoon intensively by myself. The Buddha said, no, no, why not, not, not today, Magia. And he said, no, really, and he asked three times. And so at that point it said that the Buddha uh, tends to relent. And so he said, okay, do as you see fit, which is a classic phrase for, all right, go ahead. So um, Magia goes and he sits down in the mango grove and he starts meditating. And his mind is overwhelmed by sensual thought, malevolent thought, and cruel thought. So he sits down and he has a terrible time on the cushion. His mind is just going crazy. And he comes back to the Buddha and he says, it was horrible, it was so hard. My mind was overcome with sensual thought, malevolent thought, and cruel thought. And the Buddha says to him, so now the Buddha gets a chance to offer a teaching, and he says, Magia, when mind deliverance is yet immature, five things lead to its maturity. What five? Good companions, virtuous behavior, talk about renunciation and the Dharma, energy for practicing, and the development of wisdom about arising and passing. So notice that the first three of those are off the cushion practice. Good companions, virtuous behavior, talk about renunciation and the Dharma. And then there's the arising of energy for practice, and then there's the development of wisdom of arising and passing, which is what he teaches in meditation. So basically what he was saying was, Magia, you haven't done enough of this work. You haven't done these earlier things, and therefore it's difficult for you on the cushion. Um, he, didn't just, you know, he didn't totally prevent him, though. He let him learn that. He did want people to meditate. I mean, again and again, he says, meditate, meditate, you know, don't, or you will regret it. Go sit at the foot of trees. But he was clear that there, there's preparation for that also. Even the Satipatthana Sutta, let me say one more thing. So how we create our life in the world has a big effect on what happens on the cushion. So we can 
we can do that in our life. Okay, so even I'm going to talk now about the, a little bit about the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the most common um, set of instructions that we follow in our tradition. It's the um, Sutta on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and I, I won't go through the whole teaching. But um, so this is a f- formal mindfulness instructions. Even in this sutta, which is very much about meditation, it's, it says very clearly at the beginning of the sutta that the person who's going to practice this sits down on the cushion, folds their legs crosswise, and puts away uh, covetousness and um, despair for the world. Okay, but nonetheless, even this includes internal and external dimensions. Um, I'm just going to read uh, the section on practice that's sort of offered in between each of these areas of practice. It includes this phrase, um, I'll use the foundation of body, the first of the four foundations. In this way, the practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body internally, or she abides contemplating the body as a body externally, or she abides contemplating the body as a body both internally and externally. So it's, again, very formal language. But what does this mean? And the general interpretation of what it means is that we observe our body internally, just as a body. You know, it's not my body, not my special thing. Um, But there are instructions about observing our body, very much like the guided meditation that we did. Observe your breath, observe your body, um, stay with the flow of present moment experience. It's nothing esoteric. (laughs) And observe the body internally. And then observing the body externally is generally said to mean that we watch how other people behave. You know, we notice if another person is behave, is moving very quickly and seems to be rushing, and then we feel, oh, am I rushing too? You know, we feel our own energy. So there's kind of this sense of observing other people's bodies or observing their posture. Are they sitting upright? Is that inspiring to us? There's it's this again, this notion of imitation and emulation and association. So we observe our own body and we observe the bodies of others and then we observe both, which I've, I think means watching externally while feeling our own uh, internal response also, feeling that resonance between the two, uh, which we can all do because of our mirror neurons and things like that. So even in this um, you know, very detailed set of meditation instructions, there is the notion of observing externally also. It's never, in this sutta, it's not only it's not only an internal practice. So it's very comprehensive, very comprehensive practice. We're always placing ourselves in a context. Yes, look deeply internally and be aware of your surroundings. So this is the way that the Buddha talks about on the cushion and in the world, if you will, for both lay people and for monastics. It's all about the practice. Everything is about mindfulness. It's just whether we're doing it internally or externally. It's all about whether we're associating, whether we're creating our lives to be really focused on the Dharma and always pointed toward wisdom, toward generosity, toward things that are going to support our path. It's pretty um, classical teachings. And these are, um, these are valuable. 
I find them incredibly inspiring because um, our society does not point in that direction for the most part. We're taught to pursue our greed. We're taught to pursue, you know, our status in the world, etc. So these are so refreshing to me, these teachings that just say, actually, it's about the generosity or it's about the ethical conduct. That's the dimension to pay attention to, even as you're chopping the vegetables and talking on the phone and so forth. But I do want to honor that um, people in the modern world talk about wanting to do compassionate action and wanting to um, take their practice into the world in a certain way. So I'm going to try to talk more um, more about wisdom and compassion, which are also very classical Buddhist terms. Uh, they're beautiful qualities that are that both need to be strengthened in order for the heart to be free, and each one has a natural domain. You know, one is a little bit more about on the cushion, and one is a little bit more about in the world. Although there's, I'm going to talk about how they're each in both place. They're not really separate. This idea of developing both wisdom and compassion and seeing that as the framework through which we do on the cushion and in the world practice is not only, I want to say that it's not only about our modern Western culture, these ideas actually do arise out of Mahayana Buddhism also, which came a little bit later than these teachings I've been talking about in the Pali Canon. Those are much more centered on uh, the development of these two qualities, compassion in particular actually, as a means toward wisdom. So I'm not going to say a lot about that, but I'm just inserting that as an aside so that it's not that I'm, um, you know, I'm, I am teaching something that's grounded in uh, traditional Buddhist schools, just not the Theravadan ones as strongly. However, even in the Theravadan teachings, it's said that um, compassion and wisdom are the wings to awakening, which I think is such a lovely phrase. Um, together they fly us to freedom, and both of them are needed. The relationship between them is that it's said that compassion is an expression of wisdom in the world. So whatever degree of wisdom we have internally, when that interacts with the world, it becomes compassion. It's, it's shown as an act of compassion. So how does this come about? So I want to talk kind of from both sides, like coming in once from this side and once from this side. <laughs> so... Um, Starting with wisdom, wisdom, say that we develop on the, on the cushion or through reading, something like that, this shifts our perspective and it makes compassion accessible um, when it wasn't as much before. You know, how, does it, how is it that wisdom can lead to compassion? So the way I see it is that when we start to experience things in terms of the Four Noble Truths, which is in terms of suffering and the end of suffering, essentially. We're seeing things less in terms of how I can get what I want or how I can be somebody in the world or how I can surround myself with pleasure and avoid pain. When we kind of get out of that mode and we get into there's suffering here and this is the cause of it and this is how I can let go of it, you know, we're seeing more in terms of there's suffering and, and the end of it. And also when we see things in terms of the three characteristics, um, another wisdom teaching, which we see things in terms of impermanence, in terms of not providing lasting reliability and happiness to us, and also less 
about me, you know, more, less of the story of me, when we start to see those qualities that things are impermanent, uh, not satisfactory, and not about me, we tend to gain equanimity toward change and some under, some sort of less personal investment in how things are going. And then that opens us, right? When, when we're able to let go of that me, 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 how can I get my life in order? How can I get what I need for me? Um, there's a, you know, which is all, which is what wisdom is. It's realizing that that's a fruitless pursuit. Then compassion can naturally open. You know, we can embrace the suffering of others more easily when we see that it's all just suffering. Yeah, Christina Feldman says, as one becomes more selfless, that is to say, more wise, there is less or no differentiation between their suffering and my suffering. And this is compassion. You know, when we can feel the suffering of others, respond to it as surely as we would respond to our own suffering. Um, this is an expression of our wise understanding that it's not all about me and that we're all interconnected in some way. So the wisdom leads to the compassion. It leads to opening to everyone's suffering and responding to it. How can compassion in turn support wisdom? How does that direction work? My understanding of that is that compassion allows us to stay with a situation long enough and openly enough to see the truth. So um, if we don't have any compassion, compassion is what allows us to open to suffering. So when we can open to suffering, our own or others, and stay with it long enough and not just shut down, deny, push away, turn on the headset, <laughs> whatever it is that we would do to avoid suffering, when we can stay with it, then we'll start to see how things actually are. We'll start to see the Four Noble Truths because we'll see what suffering is, what's causing it, what can end it. If we can't stay with it at all in order to study it, we'll never learn that. So compassion is what allows us to stay with suffering long enough to understand it, long enough to see the wisdom about it. Compassion contributes to the conditions that allow wisdom to arise. As an example, um, I volunteer as a spiritual caregiver at a hospital. Um, I have a little bit of chaplaincy training, um, and so I can serve there as a volunteer. And basically, I go there and I bear witness to other people's suffering. And I just, my job is just to be there and do that. Um, there's really little I can do for somebody physically, for somebody in a hospital room. The doctors are doing that. But I can be there for the uh, spiritual suffering and the mental suffering that they experience because of being there, bear witness to that. And I see again and again the truth that there is suffering involved in having a body. <laughs> you know, there's precious little that separates me from the person there. In, in Christianity, they say, what do they say? There but for the grace of God go I, something like that. So it's the same reflection. That could be me. <laughs> it's really no different. And so um, there's suffering in having a body. We get sick, we get old, we die. This is wisdom. 
And I can understand that because I have the enough capacity to go and be in a hospital room with somebody who's going through that right now. I don't have to wait for my own experience, which very likely will come at some point. So it's very useful to have that capacity to be able to gain that experience. Just like the Buddha said at the very beginning, associate with what's going to help. And whether that's friends who are virtuous or being with the suffering of you know, of people in order to gain wisdom, it's all the same. We're putting our mind in conditions that are going to help it develop things that are useful for the path. It's not all suffering, though. I just get to see the other side, too. I see people in the hospital who learn how to let go, how to be free in the midst of difficult situations. I have met incredibly inspiring people in the hospital who are sitting there with their third round of cancer and they're smiling and happy and they've made peace with their situation. And I think, wow, could I do that? (laughs) I hope so. And I, I feel honored to bear witness to this, bear witness to the cessation of suffering also. So... Having the capacity to do something like that um, gives access to some of the deeper human truths about suffering and about the end of suffering. It's really quite an honor. So practically speaking, since this is a series on balanced practice, wisdom and compassion work together to help us navigate through the suffering of our lives and of the world, so that we can act skillfully through all that, or more skillfully. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's still a challenge. So we have to find that balance between not shutting down and denying, um, not having the capacity to deal with that, but also not just saying, okay, I'm going to go in, I'm going to just put myself into the, you know, and drowning, essentially. We don't want to drown ourselves. So most people in their own practice run into this question of how to balance service in the world with their own inner development. Because they have to kind of go in tandem. You know, if you're only out in the world, I see a lot of activists who could use a little inner development. You know, they're responding out of anger or out of fear. It's not that wise to, to try to do social action in that way. You've got to do your own work and be coming from a place of wisdom and compassion in order to be effective in the world. On the other hand, there are people who sit on the cushion for too long and you know, could, could actually become wiser if they were to go out and broaden the, the experience um, of suffering and the end of suffering. So there's a lot of ways to respond to suffering, internal and external. Some people will go out and act in the world and some people will deepen their sitting practice. Once we realize that there's not that much difference between inner and outer suffering, then there are many paths available, and we can choose what makes sense for us at that time. Um, And we have to be careful not to judge other people for what they're doing with their response to suffering, because they might be in a different place in their path. The next thing they have to learn might be coming from the outer world. And if you encourage them to keep going on retreat, not that helpful. Maybe the next thing they have to learn is out there. Or, you know, they need to do more retreats. I'm not sure. For a number of years, I went on a lot of long retreats, up to three months at a time. I see now, I knew at the time that that was just what I needed to do. I wasn't analyzing it that much. But I see in retrospect that this was a response to suffering. 
withdrawing from the world for three months at a time was a clear response to suffering, my own, <laughs> in my own heart. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very valid path. It's a perfectly good response. Another path is to undertake both in the world and on the cushion, you know, really doing both of them at the same time, or to alternate going in and extending outward. This is a one more area where we have our discernment, our sense of balance in our own practice. You know, and they and they feed each other. So I talked a little bit about the chaplaincy practice. That's my in the world practice, and it surely informs on the cushion being able to be more deeply with my own suffering, having witnessed more extreme suffering in others. But it goes the other way too. I can give an example of um, uh, how on the cushion practice played out in the world for me. I worked for a while in my practice with pain. I had a lot of um, body pain for a, a period of time in my practice. And I worked with it very deeply and I learned how to be with the changing body sensations of pain and to really develop the capacity to sit with that and not push it away, not want it to go away, not be focused on when is it going to end, but to actually be with it and to open to what it is, which is a series of changing sensations, some of which are unpleasant, but not all of which are unpleasant. And there are gaps between them and so forth, discovering all of that. Um, I can say for sure that all of the in-the-world remedies possible uh, would have been less effective uh, without that cushion practice. You know, it really informed my ability to not make more out of the pain than it was in the world. And, you know, I could have gone to, and I did go to a lot of doctors, but um, uh, the most effective, I think, was the meditation, (laughs) I have to say, in terms of reducing the suffering. So they definitely affect each other. So as with the other talks I've given in this series, I want to offer some reflections, offer some possible reflection questions for you here as I'm nearing the end. So one to think about is when you experience the suffering of the wider world, you know, you read about everything that's happening in the news, do you feel drawn either to help end it or to practice more deeply? Is there a response in some way? Some compassionate response? Which one is more prevalent for you at this time? When you read the newspaper, do you feel like going out and helping? Or do you feel like sitting a three-month retreat <laughs> or something? Because both of them are completely valid responses to suffering. And then another thing to reflect on is to consider or give to yourself an example of how an insight that you had on the cushion played out in your daily life in some way. You know, is there something that you've learned through sitting that is now affecting how you talk with people or how you do your job or how you go about your day off the cushion? Is there such a such an experience you've had on the cushion? All right, so I'll, I'll wind up there. We have a few minutes more. If anybody would like to 
share a response to the reflections or ask any questions or make a comment, feel free. I think we have a microphone. Thank you. Um, I hope I don't pronounce it. I hope I pronounce it properly. Manayana, the, the uh, person, the the disciple, uh, the lay disciple. Mahanama. Um, it's yeah. so funny because uh, Stephen Batchelor is reading about him right now. Oh, could you uh, flesh out? I mean, he was the Buzid's cousin, and he took over the um, responsibilities of the Republic for Buddha. Is is that what I'm reading about him? Oh gosh, I have. Um, this is his book after Buddhism, right? This new book. His yes. new book, yeah. So I've um, I have read that, and um, he says it's from the Pali Canon. Yeah, it is from the Pali Canon. There's a number of suttas about Mahanama. Um, I don't remember the details of his life. It may be that he was a um, some kind of a political official in the town that he lived in. I think he had a pretty busy life, and Hence, was maybe not, um, you know, he would, it wasn't like a retreat practitioner, but he was a deep, uh, he was a cousin of the Buddha. He was related. And what's coming to mind is um, a very, one of the other suttas, I didn't quote from it, but one time he came to the Buddha and he, um, he said he was worried about his death, actually. And he came to the Buddha and said... Um, you know, I I walk around in this town all day and I, sometimes I'm out at night and I'm worried that I'm going to run into a stray, I, don't, I won't get them all right, a stray horse, a stray cart, a stray dog, a stray person. And, you know, I might get killed, basically, is what he said. And I worry that about the state of my mind because the Buddha teaches that the state of one's mind at death is has a big effect on your rebirth. And so Mahanama knows that he leads a busy life and that he's out and about in the public world. And he worries that he's going to, basically it's like worrying that he's going to have a violent death and therefore have thoughts of fear and anger, and you know, which is not an uh, impossible thing in the, in the ancient Buddhist world. And the Buddha is so compassionate to him and he says, don't worry Mahanama, uh, I know that you've developed your mind for a long time in the qualities of faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom. And when you go, it will not be in a state of fear. You've developed your mind such that it's going to be okay. Please put your mind to rest. It's very sweet. But you can see it, right? I mean, people worry about how they're going to die. Um, And the Buddha, and this teaching is broader than just assuring Mahanama. He's saying, this is the way to have a good death develop the mind, develop faith, generosity, virtue, and wisdom, and train the mind to go into good places. And then you don't have to worry. Then even if your death is surprising or not the, you know, the ideal death that you imagined, your mind is still going to go there. It's going to have the ability to do that. So he, and this was a teaching to a busy layperson. Does that help flesh, flesh it out a bit for you? Yeah. Curious, it's just the name was brought up. Yeah, yeah, that book that Stephen Bassler wrote uh, honors a number of lay people because 
because he's interested in the lay practitioners. So, yeah. Um, I wondered, Kim, if you would um, say a little bit more in the development of wisdom, uh, what is it that um, we can uh, know arising and passing? What is it that's arising and passing? Mm. That's a very good question. So there are um, classic answers to that. For example, the five aggregates arise and pass, you know, the qualities that we attach to as our identity. The... um, the uh, things that come into our senses arise and pass. So sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts arise and pass. And um, various qualities of mind, like the five uh, hindrances and the seven factors of awakening, come into being because of certain causes and conditions and fade when they're not there. So mostly we're observing um, experiences, and there are particular domains of experience that the Buddha points to, usually these lists. I think we don't need to be so technical in our just our regular practice. If you don't want to think about you know, those lists of qualities and be looking for those, um, I think it's helpful sometimes just to rest in the, I think I even said in the guided meditation, the flow of experience in the moment. And this teaching of arising and passing is encouraging us to notice that things come and go in a way that's not entirely under our direction. (laughs) You know, we can't choose what the next sound is going to be, for example. That's a profound one for noticing that we don't have that control. And the reason for looking at this is that we see that experience is unfolding in in a lawful way that is not really about us. (laughs) Maybe that's the kind of the bottom line teaching. So I'm speaking at a kind of a didactic level. Is that helping your question or were you asking something more specific? Okay. So this is how, I guess what I've given is how that teaching fits into, you know, other teachings that he gives. So I'm unifying, yeah. But if anyone wants to ask something more specific about that um, or a clarification, please do. Or anything else. We still have, we still have a little time. Okay, last one, thanks. I was struck by your saying about all the steps that lead up to on the cushion. All the years I've been practicing, I've never heard that. Oh, interesting. That there were there was lots to do before you sit down and it really throws an interesting light on the challenges that we have when we just go right to the cushion. Maybe you spend your day go 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 type type type. You know, listen, you know, listen, the phone, listen. And then you try to sit. And all yeah. that. And then, okay, it's time to sit. You sit down, and it just doesn't work very well. Not surprising that the mind is <laughs> agitated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because even though we may have had 
thoughts about practice or the talk we heard last night or even if we worked into our day a chance to listen to a part of a recorded talk or something. There's so much else going on. And even if we're not participating in a lot, just being in the world, it's so busy. There's so much stimulus, Mm -hmm. so much sound, so much visual. um, That trying to make that transition... It's, it's understandable why it's such a challenge. Yeah, that's the domain of restraint at the sense doors. So yeah. just learning to guard ourselves from all that stimulus is one of the steps along the way. And, you know, it's not easy in a lay life to do that. Um, of course, if we have to work, we have our families. Um, we have to just go, even if we aren't as involved in that, we have to find food for ourselves and cook it and bathe and do the things that we do every day. So this is, um, you know, this is then pointing toward the value of retreat practice for lay people is that that's a chance to really step out of all those responsibilities for a set period of time. I don't know that we can say that we quite live as monastics for that time, but it's more so. We really simplify down. And this, you know, these steps indicate the value of that. And that's kind of how we achieve all those earlier parts of the of the steps in order to get ready for meditation is that we go on retreat and we step out of all of that. That's why it takes a few days into retreat yeah. before you really settle in. But, you know, right right there in our own life, if we've been on a retreat, we see the truth of that teaching. Imagine if your life was built around that. You just do an imitation for a few days and you see the value. So this is our challenge as lay people is to figure it out. Now, the Buddha doesn't say you have to do that forever. This is the gradual training that one does for the mind, but he's pretty clear that um, once one achieves liberation or, um, you know, you develop the skill of, of uh, restraining the mind and then being able to sit and have some insight, it's actually possible to go back into the world in a different way, and all the stimulus doesn't have as much of the agitating effect based on the strength that we've developed. So it's a process. You know, I, I know it's a process, um, and but we weren't, the point is not that we're going to withdraw from the world completely. The world becomes less of a problem over time, less. Um, but but you got to go through the steps to get there. It's a gradual, gradual practice, gradual progress, gradual training, whatever whatever he said. All right, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.